welcome to our Friday Five Live podcast hosted by Meg Foster. Meg has spent 20 years in higher education focused on student success initiatives and working in areas such as orientation, faculty development, online learning, student leadership, and first year initiatives. Today, we're going to talk about uh, talk with Jim Laramore, um, and I just really appreciate, Jim, um, here's some recommendations if you'd like to share our Friday Five Live podcast. Um, Jim, I, I found Jim through um, the Heckinger Report, uh, where he published a really fantastic opinion piece um, about uh, what at that point was the upcoming um, Supreme Court's decision regarding um, uh, race-based college admissions or admissions affirmative action. I've read several articles discussing the validity of using those terms um, in this conversation. Um, Jim has extensive experience um, in student affairs at campuses really spanning the country, um, has worked at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation as the Director for Student Success, uh, launched the Center for Equity and Learning at the ACT, at ACT and he is now um, really helping to shape this space regarding um, AI and what that is going to mean um, in, in our world of education. So, Jim, I really appreciate you taking time out of a very busy schedule um, to come have this discussion with us today. Oh, well, thanks, Megan. You know, it's been a pleasure to get to know you, and I really appreciate the fact that you've organized uh, this uh, kind of online gathering and conversation. Because I, I think in the work that I'm doing, what I've often find myself doing is kind of trying to uh, hold space for kind of family voices and educator voices and discussions about policy and technology. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what we're doing today. So you have provided, um, I do want to let everybody know in the PowerPoint, there's um, the next slide has, has provides, and we'll make sure our listening audience has this as well, um, a variety of resources, including some that Jim has pulled together um, to today to help uh, guide our discussion. Um, and some of those are some recent articles that came out this week. Um, you know, I think as we're seeing, there's kind of a constant evolution of uh, discussion and, and next steps and, and thoughts and considerations. But I thought just to kick us off today, um, if you could offer, you know, a summary, sort of the outcome um, of this decision. Um, you know, we we had this conversation um, in June before the decision had been made, um, but I don't know that any of us were really surprised by the um, by the Supreme Court's decision. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 I would agree. I think I was not surprised by the decision in terms of the outcome. I was surprised by the reasoning or the you know, logic that was articulated in the majority opinion uh, there. And, and I think maybe that's a, a, a good place to start because I think for folks oh, yeah. who, so I've read the 230 page decision and concurring and dissenting opinions uh, multiple times over and have looked at it uh, through the, at those uh, writings through different lenses, trying to understand uh, how the court uh, came to its conclusion or supported its conclusion. So I'll, I'll, I'll uh, maybe start with something a little further down the line. As an educator, in my you know my background, I'm a first generation college graduate, uh, multiracial, uh, multicultural family background. Um, I always felt like an outsider. Uh, you know, as a student, I felt like I was kind of visiting in a place that culturally was quite foreign to me. And as a student affairs dean at a number of highly selective colleges and universities. Uh, in the U.S. and and uh, and and and, um, and abroad, and uh, spent a couple of years in the United Arab Emirates, helping to launch the New York University campus in Abu Dhabi. Uh, I, I found myself always kind of um, um, scrutinizing, you know, what we were doing, why we were doing it, how we were approaching it, and uh, and it's, it's just training to think about like, is there a logical flow here? And if you're as an educator, if you're giving feedback to a student. You're really looking, you know, no matter how strong your argument is, you're looking for ways they can improve the argument or you're trying to poke holes in it to help them know that there might be things that they need to go back and think about. And I think what was most striking to me, uh, um, several things that were striking to me about the majority opinion, uh, you know, one is that um, uh, Justice Roberts, who wrote the majority opinion, uh, really focused the conversation on the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Uh, which was passed in 1866, uh, right? So uh, quite quite a long time ago. Uh, that decision in 1866 guided subsequent congressional action during the period of, uh, that we now know historically as Reconstruction. 
uh, and uh, through a period of time where I think the um, uh, opinion refers to the second founding of the country, uh, you know, uh, as, as um, that period uh, around 1866, where uh, the conversation from the Declaration of Independence and the you know, original uh, Constitution uh, about all, all men being created equal in the second founding, it, it says, you know, that was uh, understood then to be inclusive of formerly enslaved people, people of color. Of course, it was many years um, after that uh, historical period that women finally um, you know, got the right to vote in the country. They, they were a little mute on that point, but the, you know, I think that there are some things that we'll come back to uh, later. But the, the, um, the discussion really hinged on the majority opinion making the case that uh, the Equal Protection Clause was intended to be, quote, uh, unquote, race blind. You know, oh. rather race conscious. Uh, the dissenting opinion, on the other hand, uh, cited a number of uh, elements of historical evidence to say that the that Congress at that point rejected the idea of race blind language in favor of race conscious language, and therefore the majority opinion, um, um, in their view, was seeking to revise history, right? To uh, to stake to create an argument out of something that was uh, clearly not. Um, um, supported by the records of congressional debates about the language to use, which were explicitly uh, race uh, conscious rather than uh, colorblind or, or race blind. Uh, and the fact that there were a number of, of other things like the Civil Rights Act of 1866 and the Civil Rights Act of 1870 that similarly uh, used explicitly race conscious language. And, and they pull their argument forward, uh, Justice Sotomayor, uh, who's joined by um, Justices Kagan and Jackson, uh, they, they pulled that conversation forward to 1954, where they looked at the uh, court's rulings in the Brown versus Board of Education case, as well as the um, uh, Bakke case around affirmative action and college admissions from 1978. So the decision you know, really hinges on um, what, how, how you interpret that language in the Equal Protection Clause and the context of that decision in 1866. Uh, setting that piece of things aside, um, you know, I think there, for, for the, those of us who are kind of working in the field today, I think you know, there, that there are probably three um, phrases that we need to really start to think about and to use as precisely as we can, right? So one is, uh, and, and I would tease this out, is the distinction between something being race-blind, oh. race-based, versus race conscious. So in the Supreme Court's majority opinion logic, uh, race blind very quickly becomes race based. That you know, whenever race is considered, the decision that flows from that is somehow based in the consideration of race and race alone. But that race, if you think about um, uh, you know, uh, uh, the ways that people react to challenging situations, you know, I've heard um, uh, therapist friends of mine describe it as, uh, you know, it's uh, uh, when someone has a reaction to something, a very strong reaction to something, it's uh, the thing that immediately precipitated it may or may not be the thing that is ultimately the cause, but it was simply the last thing that overflowed the top of their emotional bucket, oh. right? So in the, in, in, uh, by analogy, I would say that the race-based uh, reasoning of this suggests that even though there are multiple considerations or multiple factors that are considered in admissions, the court's ruling suggests that if race is considered at all, it is that last thing in the bucket that causes the you know, things to spill over the top. Um, uh, mathematically, I think that's a little challenging, you know, to, to accept as a way of, of kind of reasoning or kind of, you know, uh, uh, scrutinizing the decision, but it seems to be there. And and uh, in the dissenting opinion in contrast, I think, uh, and as well as the testimony that was recorded from representatives of Harvard and University of North Carolina, uh, that they articulate a much more nuanced, contextualized um, consideration of race as a variable, not even as like a single unitary thing, but as something that itself uh, has some variation to it. Uh, and so there are two very different schools of thought kind of, you know, reflected in the, in the majority opinion and the dissenting opinion. Um, I would say that, you know, the second thing beyond the terminology of, you know, getting comfortable framing 
race blind versus race based versus race conscious is that uh, the court argues that the selective or competitive admissions process is uh, by nature a zero sum game, right? That and and by extension, the logic of this is that um, if you um, give favorable consideration to one person uh, or one applicant, <clears throat> that that is coming at the expense of another applicant. Uh, and that, that's another piece of logic that I think uh, deserves to be examined uh, more carefully, right? Because it, it also suggests that there is some harm there. Uh, and in this case around race, if there is a, if um, a person's racial background is considered as a potentially positive factor for a school that wants to uh, compose a diverse student body, then students who are not in the, uh, uh, for legal definitions, the, the protected classes, uh, mm -hmm terms of race, uh, then they're not treated as, um, uh, as as their own identity being a neutral factor, but by saying that there's harm, then it's a negative factor, right? And I think that to me is another uh, uh, stretch like in, uh, of logic to say that uh, somehow you were harmed by someone else being given consider uh, positive consideration, right? And uh, and I, I, I play this out I, I, because I'm I think likely to do some writing about this. Uh, in logic, I think it's the difference between a plus one zero combination where plus one represents a positive consideration for one person and zero being a neutral effect yeah. on another versus a plus one minus one uh, situation where you, anytime you give a plus one to one person, you're automatically pushing someone else into a minus one uh, mindset. And I think that that is problematic. Right. Uh, so at least it, it produces some um, challenges if you kind of think a little further down the line that, you know, um, that um, if not being admitted to Harvard produces a harm, then there are uh, 19 out of 20 applicants that are harmed. Uh, right. I, I don't I don't know that there's a stigma associated with not getting into Harvard uh, that is going to be a penalty for someone for the rest of their life, right? So that, that and, and that may be stretching it uh, a bit, but there's an interesting conversation to have there. Uh, and, and I would say the other piece of this for me is that the majority opinion makes a claim about Justice O'Connor's reference to a 25 year timetable mm -hmm. uh, and, 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 and speculating in her opinion in the Grutter case in 2003 uh, about whether affirmative action would still be needed you know, 25 years hence. What's interesting to me in this is that, you know, as a practitioner in higher education uh, for quite a long time, uh, I followed the press about Justice O'Connor after she left the court and in subsequent uh, years after the Grutter decision. And there's a 2010 essay that she wrote, um, you know, in her own words, where she said that, uh, that the Grutter decision should not be considered as a deadline on race conscious policies why the majority opinion would ignore O'Connor's own words in interpreting kind of what she said in the Grutter decision uh, is beyond me, right? So I think that uh, on, on the some of this, if, if I were grading this as a, as a first year paper for students, I, I think there is, to me, there are elements of um, the majority opinion that seem like they started with a decision and then cobbled together what evidence they could to support it, rather than taking a look at the evidence itself and reasoning their way through uh, to a decision. And I think that that's going to be a, a real challenge. Um, to the second question you know, that you posed about um, the scope of the impact here, I think you know, I'm kind of of two minds. Uh, you know, one is that um, uh, there are only about 2% uh, of colleges and universities in the country that are so selective in their admissions that, that, that um, they'll admit 25% uh, or fewer uh, of, of, of the students who apply. Uh, and there are probably 250, 260-ish uh, uh, colleges and universities that are at least somewhat selective in their admissions. And those are the schools I think where we're likely to see the, uh, the biggest impact in terms of admission policies or how uh, the admission processes need to be re-engineered, uh, right? Uh, where they'll have to take some steps to ensure that they are not uh, simply taking someone's racial identity, treating it as a as a um, 
uh, as a, a unitary thing rather than something where you know a, a person's identity might actually be more uh, variable or, or differentiated and and how they think of themselves or what the impact of their identity might uh, be on their own lived experiences. Uh, the majority of colleges and universities in the country are open enrollment or pretty close to it. All right, where where race uh, will not be. Uh, a significant the, the court's decision will not have a significant impact on uh, on admissions policies uh, for community colleges, most regional comprehensive universities, and, and less selective schools. But I think that that shouldn't lead people to believe that the decision won't have an impact on students, because I that my my own experience is that you know this will. Uh, continue to have an effect that you know, students who enroll um, on predominantly white college and university campuses or most campuses, you know, for that matter, uh, may feel that they are subjected to additional scrutiny because of their racial or ethnic background, uh, right? The questions about whether they belong there, whether they earned their way there, uh, those are going to continue to surface and, and that will, you know, create uh, both uh, hopefully room for learning and room for engagement on campuses, but it also means there's an additional burden that those students may encounter uh, that uh, that could compromise right their sense of belonging on the campus. Um, for some students, it may lead them uh, to assume that certain campuses are going to be less hospitable to them or less interested in embracing them like uh, for who they are uh, in a way that might lead them not to apply. And that, you know, I think is is also a disservice, you know, to our country. Okay. Uh, I did my well, my professional career was all in high, highly selective institutions. I went to an open enrollment regional uh, public institution as an undergrad, and I can tell you that that uh, racism was alive and well on that campus. Mm -hmm. Even though uh, if you had a C or better average in high school, uh, and regardless of what your SAT scores were, uh, if you could. Um, arrive on the campus. I used to say that, you know, if you were um, uh, breathing and could pay tuition, you were pretty much in. There were still students there who looked at their fellow students and wondered how in the world they got in or somehow felt that they were, uh, you know, better than those students whose backgrounds differed from their own. So I think that, um, uh, you know, I, I don't believe that the decision represents any step forward in terms of our understanding of how race presents itself or racism presents itself in our society. And that's just something that, you know, I, I would hope that as a country that is now more than 250 years old, right, that we should be able, or close to 250 years old, that we should be um, yeah, in, a, in a position to um, speak about, you know, yeah. honestly. Right and, and openly without dividing up in, into different camps uh, too quickly. So um, uh, I think the repercussions uh, um, for families and for students um, in this are all pretty significant, right? That this is a time where I think we uh, really need to understand that um, uh, you know, uh, uh, post-secondary education, whether it's in a one, two, or four-year pathway, is very consequential in terms of employment, future opportunities, uh, right. personal growth and development. Uh, if uh, if we believe that uh, opportunity um, is um, uh, uh, more limited than a person's potential might be, then we have work that we need to do to make sure that every student has the opportunity uh, that they deserve you know, to, um, uh, to develop their own capabilities and become uh, the most formidable version of themselves you know, that they can, uh, which means that we do have to tackle um, uh, gaps in advising and support for students, um, opportunities for curricular or extracurricular engagement and involvement, because those things matter, right? The students consider what their future possibilities might be and where they might enroll. Um, I think we're likely to see some uptick in interest in historically black colleges and universities and minority serving institutions. And in an interesting way, because I think that um, you know, Gen Z is wired differently than the boomer generation was, um, I would not be surprised if we start to see uh, at least some growth in the number of white students who intentionally seek out minority serving institutions or schools that have that designation uh, as a way to ensure that their college years give them an opportunity to engage with people whose backgrounds are different than their own. Mm -hmm. During my time at Stanford and Dartmouth and Swarthmore College, you know, three very selective schools in the US, 
Uh, we recognized in each of those schools that the majority of white students who were enrolling sought those institutions because of the diversity that was available to them. Uh, and they wanted, you know, in, in four years, recognizing that many of them had grown up in more segregated environments or hometowns, uh, they wanted that experience when they were in college. And they knew that a residential environment would give them an opportunity to do that. Uh, granted, there are some students who had the opportunity in those settings to um, take advantage of that diversity who elected not to. And that was their choice, right? And I, and I think uh, the... Um, uh, the, the choices that we'll see as we look at, you know, who's applying to different schools, who's enrolling at different schools, and then what they do with their time, I think it's going to be a, a really uh, interesting, rich kind of area for us to, uh, to better understand uh, as we move forward from today. Jim, I want to pause and, and, and wrap in kind of another concept that I wasn't clever enough to ask in my initial set of questions. So yeah. I think, to me, it is um, important to note that this decision was released at a time when we are seeing state legislatures defund DEI initiatives in public colleges and universities. Yeah. Um, and and I think it is, uh, you know, uh, as we talked, I was a history major, so I love your the historic mm -hmm. context. So I think it's important to put it in that context. And and I'm I'm going to be intrigued to see. I mean, Gen Z is. Um, I was told recently students ages 16 and, and younger, which is my family, um, mm -hmm. are now, quote unquote, I'm just majority minority. And that we know our country will be that in 2050, but it has already happened um, with this generation. Yep. So as you're talking about, you know, white students seeking out those opportunities, potentially, um, what are your thoughts about institutions? Because I'm I'm definitely hearing this from colleagues who are feeling like this is an important work that we do at our institutions, but it's very much mm -hmm. under attack. Right. Any yep. thoughts yep. on that? That's um, an yeah. easy one, Jim. Um, <laughs> yeah. So when I step back and try to look at the bigger picture for this, right, and, and, and I will say, I'll give credit to the folks who helped me grow up professionally. Uh, one of the things I realized as a uh, chief student affairs officer uh, was that um, uh, I was responsible for 99% of the risk that was present on the campus because most of the risk came in the forms of students, right? What students would do, uh, what they might uh, say, you know, kind of what what decisions they might make in the worst moments of their lives, and so on, and and so you uh, you get trained with the idea that anybody can sue any anyone for anything anytime, and I think that you know the um, uh, issues that you're describing around you know state legislatures acting uh, to withdraw funding, or um, my family and I. Uh, live in Orlando, Florida. So with with a governor kind of leading the political efforts, you know, right. to uh, reframe uh, what DEI initiatives are and to seek to defund them, I think we have to recognize that uh, that this is going to be a very contested legal environment, right? So I think for um, the um, the language that I have seen used by politicians in this you know, frames DEI as uh, uh, being focused primarily on indoctrinating uh, people into a certain way of thinking or looking at things. And at the same time, there's, uh, I, I think there's so little evidence of that. Uh, most DEI programs are really built to provide support for students of, um, you know, who have historically been marginalized or excluded from opportunity to help them find their place in an institution. And at the same time, uh, I think the better programs then seek to uh, modify the ways that the institution interacts with its students uh, and with others uh, to make the environment more um, supportive for everyone. Right. So I think that there are, uh, in, in the same way that uh, Students for Fair Admissions uh, you know, brought its lawsuit together and then went looking for um, uh, you know, students who could uh, serve as the face of the case. I think that you know, we have to be prepared now for other advocacy organizations to come forward and launch cases to say, you know what? Uh, I'm a Florida taxpayer. My kids are going to this institution and they're not being treated fairly. 
and and they're not being treated fairly because you're denying them access to the supports that would help them uh, make this place their own, right? To create a sense of belonging, to navigate the environment in a way that uh, you know is is easier for some other students, right? So I think that we're uh, you know I think um, the laws of physics apply here. You know, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. Mm -hmm. I think we're heading into a period of time. I hope we are. Uh, where there will be legal challenges and where politicians, rather than um, uh, simply trying to impose their will, you know, will have to uh, stand in the public square and defend their thinking, right? Okay. Because I think they are ostensibly in the United States of America. They're there to be our representatives. They're not there to dictate you know, based on their own uh, beliefs or whims. And, uh, and so I think that we are heading into a really interesting, mm. very contentious time. Uh, I think that's you know kind of reflected in other parts of American life, um, you know, as well. The the thing I, I will point out, because I think you know, given me the opportunity for this, is that within the last 24 hours, um, the uh, uh, head of um, of SFFA has announced his intention, or he's he's now seeking. Um, uh, people who will come forward to complain that they were um, discriminated against in applying for admission to the U.S. military service academies. Mm -hmm. So the Supreme Court uh, carved out an exception for the military service academies and seemed to um, uh, reflect an openness to the case that the military leadership of the country has made that, you know, that um, a diverse cadre of leaders is essential to leading a diverse military force. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the Supreme Court carved that out, and now it's being challenged immediately. At the same time, uh, and, I, and I hope that, you know, I, I suspect that there are many women who are kind of, um, you know, listening in on the podcast today. Uh, there are other groups very quietly that are challenging programs that are established to um, uh, promote uh, female access to STEM programs, or that are scrutinizing support programs for women in colleges and universities, uh, and uh, and I, I think that that is going to be like the next um, shoe to drop, like in in this, right? That um, uh, there there will be, by extension, some really interesting things if people in education are willing to be honest about some of the choices and trade offs that have been made. So I I will say sure. that. Uh, there are many selective colleges and universities where it is harder to uh, gain admission if you're a female than if you're a male, because they're concerned that if they go beyond 55% or so female representation in the student body, that their male enrollments will continue to decline because young men will consider those to be women's schools, right? And, and so gender yeah. does not necessarily work um, you know, on behalf of women when institutions are trying to balance uh, these different um, interests, uh, you know, uh, in terms of how they compose their own student bodies. So I think, uh, you know, uh, for better or worse, I think it's best to have an honest discussion and disagreement and debate about those things than to simply let them um, fester below the surface. Uh, and I think that we're going to see some uh, some interesting legal cases that will find their way through the courts, you know, in, in the next decade or so. Mm -hmm. I also noted that in um, the the slides that you shared with us, that um, ROTC units seem not to have been. Um, right. And as yeah. uh, somebody who's uh, had the great privilege of spending a lot of time working with um, veterans and ROTC yeah. units, mm -hmm. it's. Um, these are interesting, yeah. interesting questions that you're asking. Yeah, yeah, as, yeah. as yeah. we think about it in the context. I mean, and and your comment yeah. about you know female students and male students, and we know that so many men are not enrolling in college and universities. It not our not not I'm not speaking to selective institutions. I'm speaking across the board that there's been a huge decrease in in male college students and a lot of concern about that. Right. Yep. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, I think those sorts of um, things to me as a, as a social scientist by training, right, those are really complex uh, mm -hmm. problems or issues you know, to, to lean into. Because I think that and, and there are rarely, uh, you know, rarely do we find something where there's a single explanatory variable. 
right? Where you can change one thing and suddenly everything else changes. I think people, you know, make, uh, people are complicated. The way that uh, we make decisions for our lives uh, are complex. And if we're looking at things like, you know, why, um, uh, uh, why we're seeing a decline of college going interest among young men, I think, you know, that to me is something that we really need to, we, we should ask them, right? We yeah. should uh, take a look at other options or choices that are being made, you know, along the way. I think that there are um, uh, things where, where they may just need different encouragement, different supports, different opportunities than we're currently giving uh, to them, right? Or making available uh, to them along the way, as I, I think if, and this is where I think, you know, if there are insights to be gained from um, efforts to engage more women in computer science or AI or STEM fields in general, mm -hmm. or to uh, help improve the completion rate for students of color and first-gen students in colleges, then it gives us some different lenses to use in understanding the choices that uh, um, young men in general might be making. You know, I, I think uh, as a a uh, student who, um, you know, had to work my way through college and uh, and finally got to the point where, uh, you know, I think a, um, a big change that occurred for me was that I got hired as a resident assistant uh, in the in the school where I was an undergraduate, and it gave me a break in tuition and free room and board. Suddenly, I didn't have to work full time while I was a student. My grades went up. I was much more involved around the campus. And so I think, you know, affordability, I think is a big thing. So uh, for students who may feel like they need to go to work to support themselves or potentially even to help support their family, uh, you know, college may seem like an unattainable um, goal, even if they have interest, un unless we can address affordability, right? Um, there And some of this may be that, you know, they need to, um, uh, have some exposure to the campus to be able to see themselves in that environment or imagine themselves in that environment. Um, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that, you know, as, a, as an undergrad, um, I felt like a foreigner. I felt like a visitor on the campus. It took me a while before I started to feel like um, the institution, you know, that I, that I belong there, right? Oh. That I had something uh, unique to contribute that was valued there or, or recognized there. And the majority of students in the U.S., um, who go to post-secondary um, you know, uh, uh, institutions do not go to um, you know, uh, places with Ivy-covered residence halls. Their experience is parking lot to the classroom, back to the parking lot, and then off to work. So those are problems or challenges that, you know, that I think we really need to understand um, if we're going to address these kind of bigger you know, trend, societal trend uh, mm -hmm. issues at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know this week, or maybe it was just the end of last week, uh, there was some research released around that over 50% of college students are classified potentially as first generation. Yeah. Um, and a lot of those students are are what we would use the term adult learners, you know. And mm -hmm. and so I think your your thoughts there about how are we uh, again, it, it comes into this larger picture of mm -hmm. affordability. Well, the Supreme yeah. Court said no to Biden's loan um, right. forgiveness. Yeah. Um, program. Um, it, one of the articles that I've shared with folks is an NBC piece that I thought just did a nice job of sum, mm -hmm. summarizing um, trends in enrollment since the sixth, since 1964, since the Civil Rights Act, around mm -hmm. um, based on um, race, and then looked at um, student loan debt based on race, which was I think those are important discussions mm -hmm. we're not necessarily having. And in no. the piece that you wrote in the Heckinger report, you know, you you really talked about sort of strategies institutions. So I'm gonna maybe just hop to our last question here. Um, should be thinking about engaging um, really to support their learners. And we've talked a lot in this podcast in the last year around the concept of belonging. Mm -hmm. um, and so if you could give our listeners just a couple of recommendations about these are the things institutions should really be looking to prioritize. I would be, would love mm -hmm. to hear them. Okay. Oh, sure. Yeah. And, and I think just to provide a little bit of a framework, like for thinking about this, um, you know, one of the nice things about working in uh, the research university environment is working with faculty and, and students who are pursuing all kinds of different areas of study. Mm -hmm. And uh, while I was not an engineering student at any point in my uh, <laughs> in my life, um, I learned a lot from the ways that um, 
systems engineers uh, looked at the world, right? And and I have a, a, a friend who I first met as an under uh, he was an undergraduate student studying systems engineering. He went on to get a PhD in education. And when our interest kind of brought us back together in thinking about um, preparing students for the transition to post-secondary, and then you know kind of getting them through the post-secondary experience to a degree, yeah, you know, at, at the end of that road. Um, we went back to his uh, systems engineering approach, which is that, you know, one of the things you do is you start to map things out and you look for the weak points in the mix because those are the areas where you tend to lose people, right? Or where the experience is subpar and maybe sets them up for, um, you know, some difficulty, you know, at a, at a subsequent stage. And so I would encourage people who are thinking about this to really um, uh, start to talk about, you know, that um, learner journey from pre-matriculation to onboarding to the first few months and then you know subsequent stages and to listen you know to not only look at the data but to really engage students to understand what's happening for them right because it is easy to um, uh, miss the fact that um, for some students who may have questions about whether they belong or not you know I've, I've spoken to many second or third time um, uh, community college students who, when I've, when I've um, sat down with them over a cup of coffee and unpacked their experience, and I've asked them the question about, you know, what made it easy to leave the first time, mm -hmm. right? By the time they decided to come back for the second or third time, they were determined. They were, you know, equipped to go get what they wanted out of that experience. But the first time uh, that they left, you know, what they often said was, you know, well, you know, this started off because one morning my car wouldn't start. And I, I wasn't going to be able to make it to class and I needed to get to work. And I, you know, so I had to prioritize things in my own life. Uh, and then the second day, it was just easier not to go than it was to go. Right. And I, and I can totally relate to that. And I, and I think that that uh, perspective, though, if you're a dean, if you're someone who uh, or if you're working, if you're a faculty member, if you're working in student supports, it may, if that wasn't your own experience, it may be hard to imagine then that, um, that's a problem that you should help your students solve, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and and some of this is as simple as uh, you know that 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 those students often felt like they were in the classroom, but they were unseen, and mm -hmm. so when they didn't come back, it was as if no one even noticed that they were there the first time. That to me is a solvable issue, right? That uh, I think if there are things that we need to say or do to show to our students and uh, that we see them, that we want them to be there, that we're there because they are there, right? Then I think we have a different way of connecting to them. Uh, there are different ways, I think, of understanding how students get information and where they get it, right? So uh, if your system, if your support system is based on a student seeking advice or seeking information and coming to get it, rather than you being sneaky and creative to figure out how you're going to get it to them, which might be through social media and it might be through peers who are more trusted, right? Or at least they're seen as likely to be on the side of those particular students. You know, I think there are things that can be done um, and, and that then start to accumulate into a culture of student success, not a programmatic initiative, but really, you know, to say to a student, um, uh, you know, our big goal is to see all of you at graduation, right? And and, and um, we need your help, right, to make sure that we can do that. And, and there are things that may seem like huge problems to you that are kind of medium-sized or smaller problems that we've seen before, that if, if, you, if we know about them, we can help you with this, right? I think in um, the case of the City University of New York, uh, with a program called um, ASAP, which was accelerated, supports, I can't remember exactly what the acronym mm -hmm. stands for. Uh, what they found was that if they gave students a public transit pass to get to and from school, that their attendance increased, their engagement in class in class increased, their completion, course completion rates and ultimately degree and credential completion rates went up. Uh, if they made, um, and on some of the campus where I worked, if we made engagement in a study group, a default assumption of the class rather than a voluntary add-on. Mm -hmm. And what we found was quieter students started to engage more. Students who may have been more shy or kind of insecure about being there started to engage more, right? There, there are different ways that you can um, uh, treat the campus environment and right down to the classroom level as a bit of a learning lab 
uh, right, to understand choices in human behavior and what institutions can do to adapt. And it turns out, I think, you know, that it does take um, you know, um, effort, but it is not, I, I think it is not as hard um, or as challenging sometimes as, uh, um, uh, I'll say, you know, even among my peers who I loved working with, uh, some of them were more comfortable with the status quo or felt like, oh, you know, we've already got a full-time job. This sounds like, you know, more work. And and my feeling was, you know, if it was your kid, you would do it, uh, right? If it was you as a student and someone had been able to do this for you, you know, you might, you know, put a different value on this. So could mm -hmm. we, right? Could we try it? And I, and I think that there are, so I think this is a situation where we need to look, you know, to the examples of institutions like Georgia State University, which has done a remarkable job of improving. They're a, an urban research university, mm -hmm. heavily a commuter campus. They are doing incredible things to boost their student engagement and completion rates. Um, City University of New York, you know, similarly, there, you know, there are uh, pockets of innovation and excellence that are, you know, that are uh, springing up in different places. And I yeah. think we need to figure out you know, how we um, scale that and change it. And, and ultimately, there's a little bit of a mindset, right, which is, um, as a uh, tribal elder once said to me when I was a young person, um, I complained about school, uh, and, and I must have been, like, really consistent about it, because uh, the question that I got asked was, you know, when are you going to stop thinking about school as something that happens to you, and think about you as something that's happening to that school, and I, you know, and it, it kind of pointed me in the direction of becoming a self-advocate and then advocating for others, uh, because these institutions that we have inherited were created by other people, which means they can be stripped down and reworked. Uh, and I think, you know, the fact of the matter is that um, um, students are, are uh, by and large fine. It's the interaction between the student and the environment that's not working. And so rather than try to fix students, I think we should try to fix the environments. Mm -hmm. Oh, I think I love that. What a fantastic way to kind of wrap us up as we think about, I mean, we have such a responsibility, I think, in higher education. We're all about equity and access. Yeah. And, and, and so I feel like this decision just to bring us full circle um, that the Supreme Court made has helped um, has helped us to remember that, quite honestly, and have these important discussions about how are we forming um, opportunities for belonging for our students? How are we thinking about um, our institutions? I, I love when you said, you know, if these students were our children, right? Yeah. If they had been us, what would we want for them? Um, yeah. And I think that can always be a very um, important way to sort of center the discussions. Mm -hmm. that we're having and there are so many good institutions uh, so so many yeah, of us are doing absolutely. so much important work i want to celebrate that um, mm -hmm. yeah. but i know that yeah oh awesome. yeah yeah and i think you know i have a, a, a friend who has done some incredible work around uh, basic needs and security and financial mm -hmm. aid and other things who had a, a tagline on a t-shirt that she distributed at a conference that she organized it said you know it's not all about harvard Right, and I think that for the affirmative action right. case, that uh, this is a situation where we have to um, uh, approach things, you know, kind of in, um, uh, in a variety of different ways. One is to know that um, every student deserves to be in an institution that is going to embrace them for who they are and support them and give them the supports that they need to complete. Right, so that uh, students go to the majority of students go to schools that are not as hyper selective as Harvard and Stanford. Right. Right. or on the state flagship, you know, kind of end of, of things like University of North Carolina. Um, so there's work that we need to do to help ensure that every student has the support that they need and the, mm -hmm. the um, opportunities, you know, that are, are realistic in terms of affordability and transportation right. and other things. At the same time, uh, these, you know, selective institutions do play a significant and influential role in certifying people who then participate, uh, and, and I, I, I don't like the word elite, because I don't think that the students or others who are in these institutions are any better than other people, but there is a reason why eight of the nine current Supreme Court justices have degrees from Ivy or Ivy Plus schools, right? These institutions do certify people who then get access to different 
kinds of opportunities. And I think that one of the responsibilities that we have is to make sure that that um, network of institutions is uh, diverse and representative sure. of the population more broadly, because sure. these people are going to occupy positions that make decisions for the rest of us. And I would, my preference would be that that's on behalf of the rest of us, not you know, kind of based on on their own uh, self-interest or limited experience or perception of the world is something that gets imposed. You know, on us. So I think that um, uh, competitive college admissions matters. You know, I think there was a, a significant, um, I actually kind of one other major uh, problem in the logic of the majority opinion is that they ignored the way that the admissions processes actually work and created a fiction where students are separated out by racial or ethnic background, and then where decisions are made on the basis of that set of identity characteristics. Uh, I started off in college admissions at Dartmouth. I worked very closely with admissions colleagues at every institution where I work, and the system doesn't work that way, mm -hmm. right? So <clears throat> I think there is um, there is a need to really uh, think, you know, very, very differently about, you know, kind of uh, to understand how those systems actually work and to treat that rather than to treat a fiction that I, I suspect was created to justify a decision for uh, decision that that they started with. We did have one question and I want to keep us to time because Jim, I know you've got um, another meeting, but um, Merrill's asked the question, what will be the impact on admission personal statements? Um, what would be, be acceptable to be used by admissions committees? And, and Jim, I love that you and I share an admissions background. Um, the Chronicle did have a piece this week kind of about um, this that I, I've linked to, but would love your quick thoughts on that. Oh, sure. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's a it's a great question. So I I, um, I think that the majority opinion made the statement that they did about students are, you know, of course, free to um, um, explain or kind of articulate how their own you know experiences and background uh, have helped to shape you know who they are, what their aspirations are, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I think uh, the only thing that they could have argued counter to that would have been um, some form of censorship, right? Mm -hmm. Or denial of, of, the, of the right to free expression, which I don't think they're ready to cross over into yet. Uh, but one of the uh, things that admissions officers, I think admissions leaders are going to have to figure out now is uh, what set of prompt questions can they ask that give students the room to do that, you know, to write about how their own background mm -hmm. uh, have influenced their thinking about post-secondary um, education. Um, I do think that that's a bit of a double-edged sword, right? So already we know that uh, students of color, first-generation students may feel that whether they want to or not, that they need to highlight certain things in their application uh, in order to make themselves more appealing, right, uh, to an admissions committee. So how much of that is an imposition, you know, on those students? How much of it is kind of performative uh, in a way? I think that there are uh, I, I think this is a time where it would be very interesting to have some research that is based on um, uh, qualitative, you know, kind of um, uh, inquiry with students about how they're processing this demand or request for more information from them. At the same time, uh, you know, if we're not asking a question, you know, I think we, um, I think the default is a little different. So if you're an up, a student from an upper middle class family, uh, you may not feel like you need to disclose anything about your own personal background or your family issues. And every family has issues, right? Uh, so, you know, you may not feel like you need to disclose anything or put yourself in an uncomfortable personal space in disclosing things because you can simply write about the family trip or the summer camp that, or program that you went to or some other thing. So I do think it's going to be complicated. Um, the unsolicited advice or guidance from SFFA 250 college universities yesterday also indicates that they plan to scrutinize or potentially to challenge the ways that admissions officers might draw inferences from those essays. Mm -hmm. so I, I think that, you know, that that will likely turn into a case if they can find uh, the right, you know, kind of um, uh, uh, supposed victim. Uh, you know, in uh, in uh, in uh, a future admission decision, 
so I think that this is one of those things where, you know, I think this is um, contested terrain. It's not settled. Uh, it's going to be complicated. And at the same time, I hope that there will be supports for students to be authentic and telling their own stories, right? Because I think one of the real values or benefits of uh, a selective residential college environment comes from the experience that students have when they get a roommate, which they may or may not have had, you know, prior to that point in their lives, when they meet students from other places, or they realize that growing up, um, if you're an only child and you understand your family, it doesn't mean that you understand the person down the hall who grew up in a family with eight kids, right? Uh, if you went to a small high school, your experience was high school, but it's not the same as the student who went to a, a school with 2,000 students in the graduating class, right? There, there's, there, we bundle these things together, but the experiences are a lot more diverse and different okay. and interesting. Uh, and I think that um, that exposure, you know, to that kind of you know uh, diversity in many, many different forms is a part of the magic that helps people grow up to be who they are, right? And uh, and I think that you know that that. Uh, young people are going to continue to be young people exploring and putting together, um, you know, their own learning journey and their own sense of who they are and what their interests are. There's nothing that a government can do to stop that. Uh, but there are things, you know, as educators that uh, and mentors that we can do that increase the likelihood that people will learn, you know, from each other and learn about themselves by learning about others. Right? I love that. Well, Jim, we have to honor um, our time here. So I'm gonna um, wrap us up just by saying thank you so much for coming and talking with us about a really complicated and complex um, issue and a decision that, that we're all grappling with. It's gonna be interesting to see as the summer un continues to unfold uh, the continued implications um, mm -hmm. from this mm -hmm. and, and continued conversations. I'm hoping that we can come back maybe next year, talk about AI because I make, I, that's a whole um, other field with lots of connections to this topic um, as well. So thank you so much. Um, Melissa's put in our chat um, a survey. If you fill that out, it helps us make sure we're creating content that's helpful to you. Um, and Erica just said, great presentation. Thank you um, so much. So Jim, uh, the thanks is all ours. I really appreciate your time oh. and your expertise. Yeah, well, it's been a pleasure to get to know you, Megan. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with an education audience uh, again. And, uh, you know, I think if, if there's one takeaway or kind of action item I would throw out there is that I think that this is an incredibly important time for those of us who care about students and who work in education to use our, our um, teacher voices, right? Mm -hmm. And to be a part of the public conversation and to try to bring a little more sanity and perspective you know, to the dialogue that's underway. Great. Well, thank you, Jim. Everybody take care. Have a great weekend. Always, we hope there's time for rest and renewal um, in your weekend. Thanks so much. Great. Thank you. Friday Five Live is brought to you by Innovative Educators. Innovative Educators offers six online services for your onboarding support and training needs. Visit us at InnovativeEducators.org to see how we can support your student success initiatives.